All right. I hope you're uh, excited to hear God's word, to dive together into what God has to say to us. Uh, what is God going to do? How is God going to speak? How is he going to change us? Uh, I hope you're coming to uh, the scriptures this morning with a sense of anticipation. If you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, we have the privilege once again of looking at and in a sense listening to Jesus preach. Uh, Luke, Luke chapter 6 verses 20 and following is a, a sermon of Jesus's or at least a, a summary. And one of the reasons it's such a privilege to listen uh, to this sermon of course is because of the fact that Luke has been doing a lot of work to make it clear to us that Jesus is not just another ordinary preacher. Uh, we've all heard sermons all our lives from ordinary preachers, uh, but Jesus is not just another ordinary preacher. Uh, for most of the opening chapters, Luke has been proving that Jesus has come into the world to do something. Specifically, he came to accomplish or to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, which we know are huge, like history-changing, world-changing. When we talk about someone fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament, our hearts should start beating a little bit faster because we know that we're talking about the world being made right, the complete and total reversal of the curse. And one phrase that Jesus uses to describe what that means is the kingdom of God. And maybe you remember that Luke summarizes Jesus' message this way. He tells us, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. And the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place experiencing God's blessing and God's presence forever. Jesus has come to make that happen, to make that possible. And he's proving it, too. That's part of why he did all those miracles. He's proving he can do that. So you can know that these are not just words. He's coming with power. And yet, one of the surprising things that's happening is that even as he's proclaiming that and proving that, he's being rejected, which was confusing for the early church. If you even just think about these people reading Luke originally, we've had a couple thousand years to get used to it, Jesus being crucified. But it was potentially confusing in the early church, which is part of why Luke's even writing this gospel, you remember. He told us that he's writing someone named Theophilus so that he might be certain. And Theophilus probably represents a group, I would imagine. And what would Theophilus and others have been uncertain about? One thing they would have been uncertain about is the fact that even though Jesus came and did all these great things and preached this great message about him fulfilling this great promise, he was rejected. And then he was crucified. And so one of the things that's happening in this gospel is that Luke is taking us back to Jesus and showing us the way Jesus explained that. And he does explain that, like over and over. 
So first, almost at the beginning, Luke introduces us to someone named Simeon, you remember, who shows us that this was actually part of the plan through this prophecy he made when Jesus was just a baby in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, where right after saying that Jesus was salvation, he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And so he's saying that even though Jesus is bringing salvation, it's not going to be simple, simple, because he's going to be opposed, and many are going to stumble over him, even in Israel. And we kind of get our first illustration that that is going to happen in Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist comes, and he fulfills all these prophecies about the one who was supposed to come before the Messiah, and then he's thrown into prison, just like that. And it's like, wait, what, what just happened? But this is just the pattern that keeps repeating. Because next, Jesus preaches a message in his hometown. The first sermon Luke records, and his own people want to kill him. And as we keep reading Luke, we learn that that hostility actually was not an accident. It's part of how God is accomplishing our salvation. So listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Right after Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, which is this really huge statement, Luke says, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And you can bold print that word must because that's a big part of the point that Jesus is making. It's part of the explanation. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. But part of the way that God planned for him to fulfill those promises was through him being rejected and being crucified. And that fact has implications. That fact has implications. And now we're getting to it. That fact has huge implications. And not just for Jesus' life either. But also for what it means to follow him right now, for what it means to be a Christian. So if you think about history like a line, God, God's salvation plan for history like a line, at first, at the point that Jesus came into the world, we might think, okay, after that, immediately it's glory. But it's not. And this is kind of maybe the surprise. Jesus comes into this world, and he suffers, and he dies, and he's raised, and he goes into heaven, but his followers are still here. And you know what? Their lives get more difficult, not easier. Instead of glory, they enter into an era of shame, of suffering, and of persecution which is the era, the time period, that we're living in right now. 
We're still in that time period. That, that's our era. There's a, an era, a time for glory for followers of Jesus. But that time is not right now. The time that we're living in right now is a time when followers of Jesus are going to experience shame, suffering, and persecution, which helps you understand the way Jesus begins this sermon, actually, here in Luke 6, because he says, blessed are you who are poor, verse 20. Blessed are you who are hungry now, verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now. And you wonder, why would he ever speak of being poor and being hungry and weeping in such positive terms? Blessed. Because it's not like Jesus thought of these things as in and of themselves being positive. They are not positive. To be poor, to be hungry, to weep, that is hard. The key is in verse 22 where Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And what's he talking about there, Jesus? He's saying, look, let's think about the way God works in this world. How did people treat the ones chosen to deliver God's message of salvation in the Old Testament? They hated them. They persecuted them. They shamed them. It's always been like that. And it is still like that. That's the thing. The way God is working in this world right now to, through Jesus to accomplish salvation is similar. In that, it's going to result in a whole lot of suffering and a whole lot of shame for those who are connected to Jesus right now. And so if you are suffering like that as a result of identifying with Jesus, that suffering is not a reason to be ashamed or to be embarrassed or to start questioning whether or not you're doing the right thing or to give up, but instead it's a reason to rejoice because it means you made the right decision. It authenticates, in a sense, that you really are a follower of Jesus and that you actually are connected to what God is doing in the world right now through him because that is the time period we're living in right now as Christians. We're not in the time period right now where Jesus has fully established the kingdom of God and there's glory and comfort and all that. That's still coming. We're not in the time period right now when Jesus' followers are gonna be completely satisfied and pain-free and honored that's still coming. But instead, you know what time period we're in right now? We're in the time period right now where it is normal for those who follow Jesus to be hated. It's normal. Which, of course, is why Jesus made such strict requirements about what it was going to take to be one of his followers. He's like, if anyone wants to come after me, he must pick up his cross and deny himself and follow me. And why does he say that? It's because that's the era. He knows that's the era we're living in right now. This is the era of the cross. This is not the time when it looks like Christians are winning. This is the time 
when it looks like Christians are losing. And that means if we are going to follow Jesus, obviously, we're going to have to make deliberate choices at the beginning to value Jesus above absolutely everything else. If you think of two tables, glory, comfort, honor right now on the one, and suffering, shame, and persecution right now on the other. Jesus is on that table, suffering, shame, and persecution. He's definitely not straddling in between. He is firmly on that table. And so you choose Jesus, you choose that table right now. So you remember the rich young ruler, maybe, who came to Jesus. And Jesus was like, if you're going to follow me, you're going to need to sell everything. And why did Jesus say that? I think Jesus said that because he knew that's what it takes to follow him. It was going to require the rich young ruler to value Jesus above absolutely everything else. And if he didn't do that, if he wasn't willing to do that, he wasn't going to be able to follow him. Which is why his riches weren't really a blessing. They were an obstacle. They didn't make it easier for him to follow Jesus. They made it harder. You're going to have to deliberately say no to a lot of what the world says life is all about right now if you're going to follow Jesus. Because for the most part, following Jesus right now is going to be difficult. And you know, I don't want you to be confused about that. If you're here maybe and you're interested in Jesus, you're not a Christian, but you're interested, I have got like a lot of good news for you about what God is going to do in the world through Jesus and why you can be confident about that, why you can be certain because of what God has already done in the world through Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead, so it's going to be okay. It's going to be better than okay. It's going to be really, really good. But if you decide to follow Jesus, you need to know that you are deciding to follow someone who, before he rose from the dead, was crucified. And the Bible doesn't hide that. I mean, he rose. Yes, he was resurrected. But first, he was crucified. And not because he did anything wrong either, but because that is just how opposed the world system is to him. And if you are going to follow him, you need to understand, you follow someone who was crucified. <laughs> and that is how opposed the world system in general is going to be to you. And if you have any questions, we have about 2,000 years of church history to prove it. As someone has put it, it is the normal course of normal Christianity that we suffer for our faith. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven should expect to face persecution. In fact, it's a promise. It's not usually found in those little promise books filled with scriptures, but Paul tells us all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I wish I could get this into my head because something gets funny in here sometimes that I expect the Christian life to be easy. But I shouldn't expect that. There is 
no question, the more we deliberately identify with Jesus, the more people will oppose us apart from an unusual work of God, just normally. The question is, how are we supposed to respond to that? And in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36, Jesus tells us, and what he says is pretty shocking. Look at how it starts. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, verse 27. And I want to talk first about that command in verse 27, what Jesus wants us to do. And then second, how he wants us to do it in verses 28 through 31. In other words, we're going to think about what obeying this command looks like. And then finally, in verses 32 through 35, why? But let's start with what we're supposed to do, because it sounds simple enough at first on the surface. We're supposed to love. It sounds simple until you think about exactly who Jesus is telling us to love. Love your enemies, which makes it complicated. First of all, because that's the exact opposite of how we are naturally wired to work. The way we normally work is we love people who love us and hate people who hate us. That's what comes natural. And so if you send a child into a group of other children and that child starts pushing the other one, starts pulling their hair, what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen. Those other children are going to react back and not kindly either. This is almost instinct. In fact, the reality is pretty much all it takes for us not to like someone is for them not to like us, or even for us to think that they don't like us, right? I mean, I can just be driving along and having a totally normal day, and then if suddenly someone gets upset at me on the road, and they're like, they shake their head, you know, just even a little shake, or uh, uh, they point their finger at me, like, you know, it's so easy for me in my heart to be, well, like, hey, buddy, I don't like you either. And I don't even know that person. It's just knowing he doesn't like me that at that point tempts me not to like him, which is how people normally work. And you know, it's actually to a certain extent socially acceptable as well because there are many people who just expect you to hate people who hate you. They even make arguments for it, like you've got to stand up for yourself or you can't let people walk all over you In fact, if you don't hate the people who hate you, people might say you need therapy, you need help. In some places, actually, if you love someone who's from a group that is historically against your group, your own people are going to be upset with you for it. How dare you love someone from that group? And yet Jesus is saying, as his followers, we need to take a whole new approach. The way we've been responding our whole life to people who hurt us, has to change. The way our parents have told us to respond to that child on the recess, at recess, who mistreats us. The way we've been trained and the way we naturally respond to those who mistreat us has to change. When people are against us, instead of being all about like, how do we protect ourselves or how do we get what we want, Or how do we get them to stop? We need to be thinking, how do I honor God by loving this person? Christians love. That's what we do. And there's more we need to say about this, obviously. But to start, we need to say that, at the very least, is our basic operating principle. What do we do? We love. 
And that's what we do with people here in church and with people out there in the world. That's what we do with people who love us and with people who don't, which should be freeing to a certain extent. It's a hard call of Jesus's, but it actually gives a little clarity because when people are attacking you, it can feel pretty confusing and you don't always know what to do next and how to treat people. You're like, what do I say? How do I act when they act like this? And those questions are normal because it is confusing, but just in general, at least, no matter how confused we are, we always know the direction in which we have to head. For one thing, we, we know which way we can't go. When we're figuring out how to respond to someone who's attacking us, we know that resentment and bitterness and things like that are not options, no matter how much they feel justified. And while maybe we don't know the exact next step we're supposed to take, we do know that one thing we should be praying about and thinking about and asking regarding whoever, enemy, friend, has to be, how do I show them love? What's the best way to love them? Which is sometimes complicated in real life, honestly. I recognize that. And you know what? You should recognize that as well. Because uh, this can be a little bit of a tricky passage to preach. Love your enemy. Because it's, it's definitely not good for us to say less than Jesus says. But it's not good for us to say more either. And the fact is you can say more if you're not thinking carefully. Because loving your enemy can be a little bit complicated in real life. And we can see how complicated it can be here in that Jesus is even calling them enemies. Which some people would say is not loving, right? It's, it's kind of ironic. But even the command nowadays, love your enemy, would be controversial some places. Because you know it assumes that not everyone is your friend. You have real enemies out there. There is good and there is evil. There are people who are right and there are people who are wrong. Which makes a lot of people angry even to acknowledge that. And they say making those kinds of distinctions is not loving. Which is an illustration why we read this command, love your enemy, and we're going to have to think. Jesus is not giving us this command to love and saying, now you never have to think. You have to think, because loving enemies well can be a little complex. There are questions you have to ask. Like one question you have to ask is, what does it mean to love? And you have to ask that question because we've been taught a lot of wrong things about what it means to love. Like how, for example, many people think feeling loved equals being loved. And so if I feel like what you're doing is unloving, then it is unloving. And yet that's just not true. Because Jesus is the most loving person who ever existed. And yet there are lots of people who think what Jesus says and what Jesus does is unloving. And so we can't determine whether or not we are loving our enemy simply by whether or not our enemy feels like we're showing him love. In fact, to go just a little deeper, loving your enemy well is going to include some hate, which might sound weird, but, but not really, because it's kind of obvious. If I'm not bothered by the things that are destroying you, I don't love you. And the truth is that if someone's an enemy to a Christian, that means he's an enemy to Christ. And so that means he's got all kinds of things in his life that are genuinely not good for him long term. And so if you're going to love him, if you're going to love your enemy, 
That is going to include wanting him to change and standing up against evil and sometimes even doing tough things. I think, for example, of how Jesus related to the Pharisees because he said some really hard things to them. Or even the rich young ruler that we were talking about earlier because we know Jesus loved him and yet he watched him walk away. And so loving your enemy isn't always simple. It doesn't mean that you never stand up or that you compromise truth. Jesus is the most merciful person in the universe, the most loving, and yet he's also the judge. And one day he's going to condemn his enemies. And so I don't think that Jesus is trying to like answer every single last question of how to respond exactly every single time someone hates us. And yet I do think he wants to show us the basic direction in which we always need to head, which is to love. That, that's the command. If you are following Jesus, it is going to be normal for you to be hated and mistreated for following Jesus. And maybe I should say that one again, because I don't think most of us think that's normal. And we think something's wrong if, if we are uh, treated like we're fools or we're, uh, people are opposed to us. And actually, I think we probably should think more is something wrong because it's not happening. <laughs> because Jesus, following Jesus, Jesus is hated. And he's thought of, the gospel's thought of as foolishness to the world. And so if you are following Jesus, you are going to be hated and mistreated. That's normal, and it should be normal for you to love those who hate you. But how? Or maybe what exactly does loving like that look like? After telling us what to do, Jesus gives us some examples in verse 29 through 31, how to do it. And he starts off with three sort of general steps or principles even. First, Loving your enemy means you deliberately seek to do them good. He says, end of verse 27, do good to those who hate you. It's not enough, in other words, to merely be neutral. Do good. If you have someone out there who is like planning to do you harm, so he's thinking about how can he hurt you. They're, they're like strategizing to take you down. The way Jesus wants you to respond is by thinking strategizing how you can do good to them. You sort of imitate the kind of effort they're putting into doing you harm into doing them good. It's not like, hey, this person's gossiping about me, and so you know what? I'm going to love them, and so when I see them, I am not going to yell at them. I'm just going to walk by and not say anything, which is love for a lot of us, I think. We're, that's how far we take it. We're like, look at me. Look at how I love them. I just ignored them. I'm going to stay away from them. I'm a radical. Which makes sense to a lot of us, but that's not what Jesus is saying. It means to love your enemies. Loving your enemies means you start thinking about some of their needs and you start making sacrifices to meet them. Maybe big, but also maybe small. I think one of the most obvious big examples of doing good for your enemies is when Jesus went to the cross. You realize you were his enemy. Paul puts it like this, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so Jesus didn't die on the cross for people who were his friends at that moment, but for the very people who put him there. That's a huge sacrifice. It's big. 
But there are also smaller examples as well, like a little bit earlier, before he went to the cross, when Jesus got down on his hands and knees to wash his disciples' feet, knowing, of course, the way that they would all forsake him, and then especially knowing that one of them would betray him, and even knowing which one. I think Jesus knew from the beginning who was going to betray him. And yet we don't find any indication that Jesus, knowing what Judas was going to do, ever impacted the way Jesus treated Judas. Jesus just loved Judas the way he loved the rest of them and was willing to humble himself the night before he died by getting down on his hands and knees and washing his dirty feet. That's loving your enemy. And sometimes it will involve sacrificing yourself in big ways to do them good. And other times it's going to be those ordinary ways when you get down on your knees in a sense and you humble yourself to serve them. Too often the, the way we treat others is determined by the way we think they're treating us. But as followers of Jesus, the way we treat others needs to be determined instead by the way he treated us. Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus loved his enemies. And that involves, loving your enemies involves first how you act, do good. But second, it also involves how you talk. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. And this is a different word for bless than the word Jesus used earlier. And you can see that even by the contrasting word because it's not woe, it's curse. Bless those who curse you. And being cursed is kind of intense, isn't it? When, when someone curses you the way Jesus is talking about, they hate you so much that they're actually starting to speak evil against you. And maybe even they're trying to use their words to do you real lasting damage. So it could be maybe somebody slandering you, saying lies about you, that's cursing. Or it could be someone even calling down a literal curse on your head. That happens. It, it definitely happened in Africa. Or most likely here, it could be someone verbally attacking you. But however they're using their words to do you evil, Jesus is calling on you to respond by using words that are intended to do them spiritual good. And maybe I can take this a step further, because I don't think Jesus is calling us to be hypocritical or insincere here either, like pretend to be nice when someone curses you. Some people really get good at that. They really get good at smiling and nodding when inside their heart they are absolutely cursing. And that is not what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is actually calling us to want their good. That's what it means to bless. You feel like someone hates you and you're afraid that they're using their words to do damage to you and maybe even to your family. They're saying maybe, I hate you, I want you to die. How does the majority of the world respond to that in that moment? It's pretty much guaranteed. They attack back. They go out and slander them. They talk negatively about them. They insult them. They threaten them. But Jesus wants us to do the opposite, to start looking for ways to use our words to do that person good because we want their spiritual best. And one big proof of that is not just going to be what you say to them when you're in front of them, but third, what you say to God. And so loving your enemies means doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, and end of verse 28, praying for those who abuse you, which goes even deeper because this isn't just how you treat your enemy when you're with them. It's how you feel about your enemy when it's just you alone with God. 
which is important because sometimes when you're with someone, you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, like maybe because you're scared. Fear of man has an unbelievable amount of power. And so it's one thing to do them good and to speak graciously to them when they're standing there right in front of you, and it's another when you're by yourself talking to God. That's the question. What do you want for them then? Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you. What? I mean, what can you pray for them? For one thing, you can pray that they would hallow God's name, that God would transform them deep down and give them a desire for God's glory and for his kingdom to come. And you should pray that they would repent and stop serving Satan and become one of the sons of God, which means part of God's family. You should pray for them to experience the mercy of God. And you should pray that they would long for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And if you want to get more specific, pray that God would give them what they need to do what God wants them to do. And most of all, most of all, pray that their sins would be forgiven. And that includes their sins against you. You're praying that God would forgive them for the way they mistreated you, which sounds almost like too much to some of us, especially if we've been hurt by others. But look, this isn't just something Jesus tells us to do. This is something Jesus himself did when he was on the cross. You remember as he was looking down on those who were shouting up insults at him as he was suffocating to death with those nails through his wrist, one of the things he used his mouth to say as he was bearing the weight of God's wrath for man's sin was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is love. Love for one's enemy involves blessing them and praying for them. It's going to be normal for you to be hated for following Jesus. Expect it. Expect it. And how should you respond the way Jesus did? Love your enemies, which means doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, and praying for those who abuse you. Those are three kind of general principles. But now let's get a little more specific. In verses 29 through 31, Jesus gives us three illustrations of what loving your enemy often looks like in real life. And I don't know, but maybe you hear me say that word often. I hope you hear me say that word often. Because I, I don't want to give you so many outs that you don't do what Jesus says here and you don't hear what he says. But I do think it will help you better hear what Jesus means if you appreciate that there are other principles from other places in the Bible that may cause you in specific situations to need to respond a little differently than Jesus says here. Again, you're going to have to think. For one thing, you're going to have to think because Jesus says other things throughout the Bible. There's more than just this passage here in Luke. And yet the thing is, there is this passage here in Luke, and Jesus is saying this for a reason. And I think we're going to see that he's saying it like this because he wants to challenge us to respond differently to our enemies than we just naturally normally would. And so he's putting it almost in extreme terms, like think, please think about what loving your enemies mean. And one thing it means is you're going to respond differently when they shame you. First, there's how you respond when they shame you. Jesus says in verse 21, 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And Jesus is giving us an illustration here 
that actually specifically has to do with religious persecution, which we can understand better by knowing the context in which he was speaking, because Jesus was a Jew, and so the people following him at this point would have been Jews, and Jesus knew that many of them would actually be thrown out of the synagogue later as a result of their relationship with him. And he even predicts it in John 16. He says, they will put you out of the synagogue, which was a big deal in the Jewish culture because the synagogue wasn't just like a place you went to church. The synagogue, it was your tribe. It was your people. And to be cast out of the synagogue would have been humiliating because these were your closest friends looking at you and spitting on you, basically. And to demonstrate how big a deal it was, how much they despised you, they would physically punish you as they were casting you out of the synagogue. They had like a a process by whipping you in front of whoever wanted to watch. And then after the physical punishment, the religious leaders would bring you in front of all your family and friends, and they would dishonor you and attempt to humiliate you by slapping you across the face, which is primarily what I think Jesus is talking about here. I, I don't think he meant us to take this as an absolute rule, like literally if you punch me in the face, I have to stand up and say, ah, you actually missed a spot. Um, Punch me here as well. I don't think that's what Jesus intended. If a child punches his parent in the face, I don't think Jesus is going to say to the parent, you need to let your child keep hitting you. Or if there's a riot and the National Guard comes in, I don't think Jesus would tell the National Guard to just allow the rioters to do whatever they want. Instead, I think he's talking specifically about how you respond when you are shamed for your relationship with him. And so I don't think, again, that we can take this. In fact, I would say we 100% absolutely can't take this and be like, you know what, if you have an abusive husband, here's what Jesus says you need to do. Because that is not how God intended us to apply this verse. There is a time when loving people means we need to stop abuse from happening. We know that. God. That's part of why God instituted the government. We can't let those people continue to sin easily. It wouldn't be loving to let an abuser keep on abusing. But what we can do with what Jesus is saying is take the principle and apply it, which is that when others go out of their way to dishonor you because of your relationship with Christ, you should be concerned about something more than just your personal honor in that moment. And instead, you should start looking for ways to demonstrate that Jesus' honor is more valuable to you than anything else. Because look, Listen, we're not living in a time when you should expect to be honored for your relationship with Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you are going to have to give up worrying about your own honor and focus in whatever situation you're in on honoring him. Second, another illustration Jesus gives is is how to respond when people mistreat you. In verse 29, he says, from one who takes away your cloak... Do not withhold your tunic either. And a cloak was kind of like a jacket and a tunic like a shirt. And back then, people didn't have all kinds of jackets and shirts. And we know many of those who followed Jesus were poor. And so they definitely didn't have many cloaks like we do. Maybe they even only had that one. And that one cloak would have been important to them because it got cold. And so you can imagine trying to survive in the winter without any blanket or jacket to keep you warm. And yet Jesus says, if someone hates you so much for being a Christian that they take your jacket away in order to make you suffer, just keep on doing the right thing and loving them. Even if it means they go the next step and take your shirt. Which I think Jesus says probably because he knows we have all kinds of exceptions for ourselves. 
that we use to keep ourselves from actually having to obey his command to love our enemy. And so he'll be like, love your enemy, and we'll be like, I would love my enemy. You know me. I am, I'm really a nice guy. And I would normally like to, to do this. That's how I am. That's just how I am. Except maybe you don't understand how they might humiliate me. Or maybe you, you, you don't know how they might use my response against me or how they might take advantage of me. And so I would definitely, definitely, totally, totally normally obey. But if I do this time, it might cost me something that I desperately need. And Jesus is saying, actually, that those aren't genuine excuses. If they humiliate you, let them. And if they end up stealing from you, that's fine. Which messes with our minds, I think, a little bit, because it's just such a different way for us to think, maybe especially as Americans. We've got rights, you know? We've got rights. And of course, we could bring up exceptions and challenges, but at the same time, I think we need to be careful and just let Jesus push us a little so that we can actually be different than everyone around us. And it takes a little push, because some things we assume as givens, like they're just the way they, things are, might not actually be givens. For example, like here's one that I've found when it comes to following Jesus that for some of us is a given. And that is that personal safety basically trumps all. And so this is the culture we're living in. Uh, the most important thing is survival. And so you can talk about loving Jesus and following Jesus, and that's fine. But if loving Jesus is ever going to put you at any kind of risk, that's an automatically, that's like a non-option. You don't even have to think about it. And Jesus is like, well, not so fast, because while sure there may be things you have to think about and there may be wise ways to go about it, at the end of the day, you need to understand the kind of love that Jesus is calling you to as his disciple necessarily involves putting other people's good and Christ's honor above your own personal property or security. You remember how Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to love me more than your own life. That's big. What does it look like to love your enemy? This is what it looks like when they humiliate you. This is what it looks like when they mistreat you. Third, Jesus shows us what it looks like when they need something from you, which might be even harder, actually. If you look at verse 30, he says, give to everyone who begs from you. And I think it's probably important to remember, again, the context in which he said that, because Jesus is talking primarily about responding to people who hate you, or even more broadly about loving your enemies. Because when you look at this, at first, it, it kind of seems like Jesus is making a switch and just talking about people in general now, but I'm not sure, actually, first of all, because of the context. If you look up to this point, every single example has been someone actively doing you harm. And second, I'm not sure that's what he's saying because the reality is that sometimes it isn't really loving to give someone something when they ask because it's making it easier for them to continue on in a pattern of laziness. And so again, there's probably some complexity that we need to discuss. Actually, even if Jesus is talking about everyone here, I don't think he means everyone all the time without exception because imagine if I'm a policeman and a thief comes up and asks me for my gun. I don't think what Jesus says here means that I have to give it to him. So there are times when obeying this command might be a little complicated, but the basic principle that Jesus is giving is pretty simple, which is that loving others means 
we should be willing to give without really being concerned about whether we're getting our money back, even when it's someone who hates us, which is something that's going to make us stand out because most people are willing to do something good for someone they think can do something good for them. But as Christians, the determining factor when it comes to what we give and who we give to is not, is this good for me? Does this make sense? And we're not asking either, do they deserve it? Instead, the question is, how can I do real lasting good for this person who's in need, even if this person happens to be someone who hates me? And, you know, even if he's used his power against me in the past, which you can imagine, I'm sure this was probably a real-life illustration or situation in the early church. You can imagine uh, maybe being persecuted by someone who hates you and curses you and humiliates you, mistreats you, and then suddenly, somehow, the situation kind of reverses how it does in life, and now he's the one in trouble. And so he comes to you and asks for something from you, and we can all see that it would really be tempting at that point to be like, are you kidding me? And not even feel a little bit guilty about it. Like you have the right to turn your back on him because it's not like he's your family. It's not even like he's part of your church either. We might see their need even as an opportunity to get back at them. Like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Now how, you know how it feels. But Jesus says, stop. This is how the world is going to know you're my disciple. You are going to suffer. You are going to be persecuted. That is normal. But you know what else should be normal for us as Christians? Love. Love your enemies. And you know what that looks like in real life? You do them good. You bless them. You pray for them. And when you're dishonored, you value me above your honor. And when you're mistreated, you value me above your personal rights. And when you have the chance to get back at someone, you trust me enough to be generous to them. And you refuse to seek retribution or vengeance when they've sinned against you. Verse 30, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. I'm not going to answer all the ins and outs of how that works all the time because I, I, I guess I don't think that's the point. Instead, I think Jesus is talking in extreme ways to get us to wake up and start living differently than everyone else because we've got different priorities than everyone else. Our value system is different than everyone else. Because way back when we first chose to follow Jesus, he told us what it meant. He said, it's blessed to be poor. It's blessed to be hungry. It's blessed to weep right now. Why? Because a lot of times, that's what following him is going to bring. If being rich, being full, laughing, and having everyone speak well of you is your first priority in this world right now, as you're trying to follow Jesus, you are going to be disappointed, guaranteed. You are going to have enemies if you follow Jesus. He literally told you that, which means if you're following Jesus, you have to have a priority that is even more important to you than your honor, than your possessions, than your personal rights. And so even when you're taken advantage of, instead of focusing on yourself, Jesus is saying, I want you to focus on loving your enemy to the point where even if someone steals from you, you recognize you still have a responsibility to love them. And if you need a simple way to remember what Jesus wants, I guess it's verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So as you're looking at the person persecuting you, they are treating you the way 
You don't want to be treated in the way they wouldn't want to be treated, and you need to be thinking the exact opposite, which is how can I show the kind of love and compassion to them that I would want to receive from them? Love your enemy. Deliberately do them good. Bless them. Pray for them. Why? And that's the third question, I guess, because if we follow Jesus, it's going to be normal to be humiliated, shamed, and hated. And we've got lots of training from our world how to respond to people like that. And mostly it is cancel them, delete them, or maybe attack them. But what does Jesus say? We do. He wants us to show this world a different approach. Love. How? In some really shocking, radical ways. But why? Why? First, it's because you're a Christian. And because as a Christian, this is an opportunity. This is one way you stand out. You've got someone causing you problems. You've got someone saying unkind things. You've got someone who's mistreating you. You love them. Not because you're insecure and you're finding your identity in them or some other weird reason, but because you're trusting Jesus and you want to honor him. And you're going to stand out. People are literally going to think you're crazy because that kind of love is not normal. What is normal, Jesus says, verse 32, is if you love those who love you. People do that. Even sinners love those who love them. And what is normal is if you do good to those who do good to you. Because, again, people do that. Even sinners do the same. And what is normal, verse 34, is if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive. Because people do that. Normal people do that all the time. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. It doesn't take a work of God at all to do that. If that's all we do as a church, what credit is that to us? How does that make Jesus look great? But I'll tell you what does make Jesus look great and what does cause people to start asking questions, loving your enemy. I was reading uh, this week about Shelby Houston, whose father was a police officer and, and murdered. And at his funeral, Shelby, I think she was 18 at the time, talked about how much she missed her dad. You know, she's crying. But you know what else she talked about? She talked about how her heart was aching for those who don't know Jesus. And specifically, she was talking about the man who shot her father. She said, I can't get any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. And you know what happened? That clip went viral. People start writing her, asking for Bibles. Like, what's going on? I don't know if you've heard of Gladys Staines, her husband and her two sons, age 10 and age 6, her, her sons. They were burned to death by a mob in India because they were Christians. And you know what she wrote on the front page of one of the newspapers not long after? She said, I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. My husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. And you read that and what happens? You start asking questions like, how does someone love like that? You've probably heard about some of the members of Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where there was that terrible shooting a few years ago, a racist shooting. I read this week how one of them, uh, whose wife was killed by the shooter, told him in the courtroom, I forgive you, son, and my family forgives you, but we would like to take this opportunity to call you to repent, 
to confess and give your life to the one who matters the most. And on and on we can go, and probably we will go on and on in eternity. There will be millions of stories like this. But that brings great glory to God, because how does that happen? That's supernatural. When God saves you, he changes you and empowers you to want things and do things you never would have wanted or been able to do before. And one of those things is love people who don't love you, who attack you, who hurt you. Why do we love? We love because we're Christians. And it's because we're Christians that we can love. I like how Corey Ten Boom explained it. And if you don't know Corey Ten Boom, Google Corey Ten Boom. But she was in a, a concentration camp and survived, and her whole family basically died there and was terribly mistreated. And years later, she met one of the guards. She recognized him. And uh, he came up to her after she gave her speech, and he asked her for her forgiveness. And it was so hard for her to forgive, she said. She felt like she couldn't. He held out her hand, and she almost felt like her hands were frozen to her side. And so in that moment, she cried out to God. And you know what happened? God strengthened her to forgive. She raised her hand. And as she thought about that day later, forgiving that guard, you know what she said? She said, when God tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself, which is why he gets so much glory when we love our enemies. We love because we're Christians, that's first. Second, we love because as Christians, we believe, believe in eternity, verse 35. But love your enemies, Jesus says again, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. We're not fools, Christians. Like We're not people who just like to suffer and die. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the hungry now, he doesn't stop there. He says, for yours is the kingdom of God, for you shall be satisfied. And so we're choosing the table with Jesus on it right now and suffering and shame and rejection because we know there's going to be a reversal. And we know that the day's coming when Jesus is going to be glorified and that he's going to glorify and reward those who follow him. And that reward is better than anything we could achieve for ourselves right now. And so even though being hated and excluded and reviled right now is painful, we actually look at it as an opportunity to invest in something better by trusting Jesus and loving those who hurt us because we're Christians, because we believe in eternity. And then finally, because this is how God loves us and we're his children. Verse 35 again, and even verse 36. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful, which is a, a sermon in and of itself, just that verse. We could spend a lot of time talking about the patience and kindness of God to the people who hate him. But the point here is, we're not only supposed to talk about it, we need to show the world what it looks like the love and patience of God through the way we treat our enemies. And if we're following Jesus right now and we actually have some relationships with unbelievers and we're opening our mouths at all, we probably will have some enemies. That's normal. It's really uh, not normal for us not to. For us to go around experiencing riches, comfort, pleasure, everyone speaking well of us all the time, that's not really that normal because that's not the basic time period we're living in. And that's hard, yeah, all that 
pain and persecution, but that's also okay because God has a plan. And we know it's not the way things are going to go on forever. He's going to reverse it. Glory's coming. There's a time coming when the followers of Jesus are going to be satisfied forever, when the followers of Jesus are going to laugh forever, when the followers of Jesus are going to be honored and rewarded forever. But that time, for the most part, is not right now. And so achieving all that right now shouldn't be our priority. But you know what should be our priority? Loving those who mistreat us. Why? Because it's an opportunity to glorify God and show the difference that he's made in our lives. Because he's going to remember, and he's going to reward us. And because this is one way we can show the world as a church what God looks like. Until Jesus returns, people are going to disrespect us. But that's not so bad, because that's an opportunity. If we trust God and imitate his love for us, he can use that moment in world-changing ways. And we know that he can use that moment in world-changing ways, because that's how he used Jesus' response to his enemies in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, this is a pretty simple call. You're going to be persecuted for following Jesus, and you're, you need to respond by, by loving, and yet it's so hard for us. And the only way that we're going to be able to do it is if we keep going back to the gospel and remember, of course we love our enemies because we were your enemies, and you loved us. And so this situation right now is actually an opportunity. Blessed are those who are poor right now. Blessed are those who suffer right now. Blessed are those who are persecuted and excluded right now because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus in those moments. As we seek to love our enemies, we're walking hand in hand with Jesus, with you, Jesus, because that's exactly what you did. And now we see you're honored and glorified. And so we just ask, Lord, help us not to be so afraid of, of having people not like us that we don't ever take a stand. And Lord, help us not to be obnoxious either and try to get people not to like us. But Lord, help us just to choose Jesus in every, choose you, Jesus, in every moment. And we know if we choose you in every moment, it's not going to make everybody happy. In fact, the opposite. It's going to make a lot of people angry. And as that happens, Lord, remind us, Remind us, this is what we were like, and, and you showed love to us in those moments. And help us to show the world uh, the difference the gospel made in our lives by loving those who don't love us. Uh, we need help. We're not going to do this without a, a massive work of your spirit. So please help us, Lord, to think and live differently. Because uh, you came into the world and you changed everything. We pray this in your name. Amen.